You're listening to the Social History Hub podcast brought to you by Creative Podcasts. Hello, I'm Lainey Malkani and welcome to the Social History Hub podcast. Every week I'll be exploring the nature of social history and what it means to us today with an exciting lineup of artists, entrepreneurs, academics and writers. They'll share their stories and relive the moments and events that inspired them. Coming up, the queen of Lover's Rock, Carol Thompson, who's been a champion of a very unique, very soulful and very British style of reggae since the 1970s. Lover's Rock is a hybrid of reggae, soul and pop music created in the UK. In Jamaica they have their own brand of Lover's Rock but UK Lover's Rock is is quite distinctive in its sound and its approach. It's a branch from the reggae tree. More from Carol Thompson in a moment but first what's her story? Well this talented student had a place at Cambridge University and was destined to follow a more conventional career as a doctor or lawyer. But her beautiful, soulful voice, coupled with her flair for songwriting, took her down a very different path and as a teenager in 70s London, became part of a new reggae sound that's lasted over 40 years. I'll let Carol take up the story from here. Well, Lover's Rock is a hybrid of reggae, soul and pop music created in the UK. In Jamaica, they have their own brand of Lover's Rock, but UK Lover's Rock is is quite distinctive in its sound and its approach. It's a branch from the reggae tree, but it's I would class it as soulful reggae. Beautifully put, a branch from the reggae tree. I absolutely <laughs> love that. So where did it come from? Well, it was the second generation, predominantly Caribbean kids here in the UK, um, who wanted to be part of the reggae scene, but didn't um, naturally um, drift into the roots and conscious reggae music. Um, so it came from school kids who were experimenting with reggae music and expressing themselves through that medium. So take us back to the point where it began to influence your life. So mm. we're looking at the 1970s. Yes. Well, I'd always been influenced by reggae music coming from a, a Jamaican household, from Scab, Blue Beat, Rocksteady, and, and then reggae music with Bob Marley. Bob Marley was my first sort of real connection um, when he, um, he came out with his major albums through Virgin Records. And then I started um, getting involved in a lot of roots music, such as um, Burning Spear and the Abyssinians and culture. And through reggae music, I learned a lot about black culture, just about slavery and about how um, colonialism had, had affected us up to that point. I hadn't really had any exposure from that from school, which is really interesting. So... I got into reggae music, got into the consciousness of it and understanding as a, a black girl in, in, in the UK in the 70s. Apart from that, I was influenced by a lot of jazz and then pop music. And then I really got into the Philly sound, got into people like The Emotions, The Jones Girls. Always loved um, Stevie and Michael Jackson and, and Diana Ross and everybody else but the Philly sound I loved it and loved the strings the, 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 the soulfulness of it so I think for us it was a case of using all of those influences 
and and creating something that that resonated with us all the even though I don't think it was conscious it was like, like almost as though it was musical of, Mo, of Moses really we just had absorbed all of these different types of musical forms and then had an opportunity to go in the studio and create something that we thought was reggae music but was something completely different <laughs> I mean, you, you talk in the, the collective, so it's we and us. Yes. Who else? Well, Lovers Rock is movement. It's not just one person. So Lovers Rock, you had um, exponents such as Louisa Marks, who was possibly the very first, what they were called, queen of Lovers Rock. She had the first major Lovers Rock hit called um, Caught You in a Lie. And then from there, you had people like um, Janet Kay. Um, you had groups um, such as Brown Sugar and 15, 16, 17, um, who were having music um, released via men who ran, ran sound systems. So the men that ran the sound systems would then produce records and then play it on their sound systems and then they would become hits. And at those, in those days, they didn't really have many pirate stations. So the only way people heard the music was when they went out. There were many clubs back in the day, lots of clubs and lots of house parties where these sound systems would play regularly. And that's where people would hear the music. So when I say we, I'm talking about the musicians, the producers, the artists and the sound systems. Was it predominantly a movement made up of women? Yes, it was predominantly a female movement primarily because a lot of the guys would prefer to do the roots and culture the conscious um, roots music reggae roots music kind of following down the line of Bob Marley and talking about politics and social issues Um, so there wasn't you didn't find many men doing love songs unless it was the occasional sort of rootsy love song so this gave um, us as females a, a a, a great opportunity to to express all all the angst <laughs> and all the heartbreak <laughs> that you go through as teenagers and it was a, a really you know a great opportunity for us to to express ourselves albums are all original songs. I was always writing songs and always writing poetry and um, sitting down and pouring my heart out in a pen. So yes, it came natural to me and I really enjoyed it. So the classic album of the Hopeless in Love album was definitely all originals of just teenage angst. <laughs> Much needed, I think, because at the time there were so many things going on in London, weren't there? Not least that the first generation of communities have come here and settled from all over the world, in the Caribbean in particular. You were second generation. Yeah, being second generation, our experience was very different to our parents' um, experience. Their, their, their plan was always just to come here, make some money and go back. But, you know, five years in turns into ten, ten into twenty, twenty into twenty-five. So we actually were born here and I was born here, went to school here and was very much um, a British girl. And what was going on at the time? Well, at the time for me, when I started um, re-recording the Hopeless In Love album, it was just at the, the, the cusp of the um, Thatcher era. There was a lot of angst on the streets, especially for black males. A lot of the sus laws had come in. There was um, 
a lot of racism and because we were of that generation where we would talk about it we were not like our parents who were just as old just put your head down and get on with it we were plugged in we were born here went to school here so as far as we were concerned we had just as much right as anybody else to go to university go to college get the job that you wanted if you were qualified for it and we had every we had the right to walk down the street without being stopped just because we're going to buy a bag of flour. That's what was going on. That was a backdrop. So you had, in music, you had the, the roots and the conscious side talking about those things, talking about living in a box on the 20th floor as a house and, you know, and being arrested and stopped and searched and, and feeling that you're, you didn't have the right to do certain things just because of the colour of your skin. And we, were, we had that as a backdrop. And it was a great period of aspiration, of finding ways to mm. to mobilise and to get out of that situation. Yeah, it was a very aspirational time. Um, as much as you had your rivers of blood and eating up power talking about all of those things and you know people trying to um, make you believe that we couldn't all get on and we couldn't all achieve and that it was going to all end up in chaos, there was still this feeling that actually we can achieve. And a lot of people went to university and through hard work, a lot of us achieved all of the things and the dreams that we had. Um, And it was a wonderful time. And your aspiration Mm. was not originally in music. (laughs) Yeah, my path was, I was meant to go to Cambridge University and um, study to become a, a, a pharmacist or a doctor. Yeah, that was the family aspiration. (laughs) But music was always my love. And um, in the 70s, you know, music and acting was not something that um, was encouraged. I remember my careers teacher saying to me, oh, but Carol, you know, most musicians and actors, they spend their lives resting. You know, what are you really going to (laughs) do? So it was never something that you took seriously. It was almost like a pastime. And also my family, they just couldn't understand how I could have a career in music. It just seemed impossible. But, you know, through fate and destiny, I was able to um, pursue music in the long run. You mentioned teenage angst more than once. Oh, right. Several times, in fact, Carol, (laughs) which makes me wonder what on earth was going on in your life at the time. (laughs) Tell me more about the the title track of the album, which is Hopelessly in Love. You see, Hopelessly in Love started its life while I was trying to counsel a friend of mine who had fallen deeply in love in her teenage years with the absolute wrong person, so she was one of many girlfriends <laughs> and she came to me heartbroken and um, just just couldn't work out how she could get rid of these feelings, how she could detach herself from this, this guy that she was just so hopelessly in love with. And she was one who came up, she says, with that title, she says, Carol, I'm just hopelessly in love with him. It's just as though I'm drowning in this thing, in this love I just have lost myself, you know, and... So from that conversation, um, and also I, I had fallen in love myself, not, not tragically like that, but I'd also fallen in love really for the first time. And um, quite a lot of us were falling in love deeply at that point for the very first time. And these are all new feelings where we had absolutely no skills to deal with this, these feelings. And 
and, and no one to ask, presumably, because it wasn't easy in those days to go to your parents and say, hey, this is what's happening to me. What's your <laughs> advice? No, we weren't of that generation yet where you could say, hey, mum, you know, I've met this guy and, you know, I really like him. And, you know, we've had sex for the first time and, and, it's, and, I, and I'm lost. You know, you just couldn't have that conversation. So we would just we would all talk to each other and neither of us had any more experience than the, than the next peer group person that you spoke to so we were just all going around in circles really so this song um I feel connected with my peer group because we were all lost and we're all falling in love which is what you're meant to do but we had no guidance and it was a feeling that I was able to pen and 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 everyone kind of got it I mean, we're talking about 1975. Mm-hmm. It's now 2015. Right. How have you managed to keep Lovers Rock going? Lovers Rock is one of those, the artists, including myself, that were singing the music, were singing from the heart about what was happening at that time. Nobody was saying, well, I want you to sound like this, I want you to do this. We were just being very honest and, and organic about it. So there's something quite innocent and pure about it as a musical form that has managed to sustain time. And um, also, it's one of those types of... It, it, I know my album in particular is an album that's often was often played on a Sunday when people were cooking and cleaning or whatever throughout the, throughout the week. And so children, the children have absorbed the music. And I do find that the shows that I do, entire families will come even the generation above, who would probably hear it, um, hear their children playing it. And so I get grandmothers, mothers, 20-somethings, 30-somethings coming along to my shows who will come up to me after the show and say, oh, you know, your music just reminds me of rice and peas on a Sunday. like a favourite auntie. You talked about the branch of, of reggae yeah, and yeah. that Lovers Rock was a branch of that, but it's it's kind of got its own home tree now. I think so. I think you're absolutely right. You know, starting off as a branch of reggae music, it has now established itself as a genre in its own right, firmly planted and rooted in the UK. And off the back of that, you have many acts and many performers who have been influenced by Lovers Rock, Boy George, Sade, Everything But The Girl, and all kinds of people that have got in touch with me over the years who have cited Lovers Rock, and especially the Hopelessly In Love album, as, as an album that has, has definitely influenced them. So it's there, and it's rooted, and it's in this country. And I think because it was never a genre that was picked up on a major level apart from the one or two songs as individual hits it's always sort of been a sort of underground our kind of music that has never really kind of had that pop brush tainted it so it's, it's very still very organic and real so and I think that it's definitely definitely has a place in social history you can play that record you can visualize a lot of other things that are happening socially and politically at the same time could it have emerged today? No, not in, it's not in that form. Because music is so controlled now and controlled by very few people. Um, Love's Rock happened because we were a generation of entrepreneurs and we were allowed, we had the room and the, and the space in order to um, invest our time and our, and our ideas and our dreams 
and create something and we were allowed to do that without too many people influencing it and also at that time you could actually get um, the music out and people could buy it there were many record shops there were many sound systems and there were lots of ways in which to hear the music and so um, you didn't have to cross over so to speak you could just put it out and people got it and people could buy it so now it's it's a lot harder so we made references to, to social history mm. and and lovers rock definitely has mm. its place in mm. social history mm. so what does social history mean to you i think social history is crucial because it gives context to the the wider picture or the pinnacle in which people are talking about within history at that particular time and social history gives the listener or the reader a chance to actually understand what was going on on many social levels um, at, at that particular time and to give a wider, uh, a wider and clearer understanding as to what was really happening historically. And I think it's very important. What one experiences to one person is something that's entirely different to another. Bearing that in mind, mm-hmm. is there a story that you can share that's kind of captivated you? Wow, gosh. A story that's captivated me. When I first had a job in Knightsbridge for a fine wines distributing company, I applied for the job and they spoke to me on the phone and everything and I came in for the job. And when the owner of the company realised I was I was a black girl, he was really, really shocked and pleased. And when I he after he gave me the shot the job, he took me out um, to Claridge's because we were doing fine wines and we used to do the Beaujolais run and stuff like that and ever so often we'd go to Claridge's and have a business lunch and he sat down and he said to me I'm so pleased that I met you because I never thought about the second generation and he said that it's he said you are a fine example of your second generation and on the back of that he invited my parents down to Claridge's and bought them the best wine and he knew that my my father he he liked whiskey so he got him a fantastic whiskey and he said that had I never if I had never applied for that job he would have never known or had never would he have come in contact with West Indians never it wouldn't happen and and he was so pleased and so happy that um, whenever he goes out now and, and he's with his group and they have negative things to say about West Indians because they don't understand or have never had a contact, that he can stand up and proudly say, you are talking a lot of balderdash. <laughs> And I'll never forget that. And um, it was it was an interesting moment because I, I know that it may sound a bit weird, but I could totally understand where he was coming from in his little little bubble of a world. You know, that to me, that was a really in, interesting moment in my life. Carol Thompson, the queen of Lover's Rock. <laughs> thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you very much. It's been a pleasure. Carol Thompson, the Queen of Lovers Rock. Next week on the Social History Hub podcast, I'll be talking theatre with Suman Butcher. She's been at the forefront of a movement to bring cultural diversity to UK audiences from the hit stage play East is East to Bombay Dreams with Andrew Lloyd Webber. That's next week on the Social History Hub podcast. Join me if you can.
You've been listening to the Social History Hub podcast. You can listen again to our podcast at socialhistoryhub.com or download each programme from our website, from our RSS feed or from iTunes. And if you have a story to tell, why not drop me an email, laney at socialhistoryhub.com. The Social History Hub podcast was brought to you by Creative Podcasts.